Good evening, and welcome to Friendship Radio and to the grand march through life. It's good to have you here this Thursday evening. My name is James Huey, facilitator of the Friendship Personal Retreat Program here in Galveston and on ships cruising seas throughout the world. Offering the gift of listening hospitality, I invite you to join me here on KGBC Friendship Radio for Southeast Texas as we explore topics to enrich the quality of your life, power for positive living, and friendship. I have two special guests this evening that we'll be talking with a little bit later, Mr. Scott Conkle and Mr. Danny Carr, who are therapists for adolescents at the Rolfa Psychiatric Hospital in Houston. They're going to be helping us understand the treatment programs and the procedures and things that happen when working with adolescents in a psychiatric hospital. Try to really understand that area of mental health a little bit more this evening. Hopefully this kind of dialogue will once again be useful for you. I guess probably one of the most frequent questions, and I'm going to try basically to just kind of get questions that I frequently hear from people, and have you a chance, if you can, either one of you just jump in and kind of share with me and with the listeners something that would help them understand. Basically, what is a psychiatric hospital? That would be a good place to start. I guess as far as Deer Park and any psychiatric program in Houston, I think the public is sometimes we go by what we see on the media, the TV. Our facility is not something where, something like you'd see one flew over the cuckoo's nest. That's not what it's like. It's it's a facility where people need a little bit more heavy-duty counseling than that some maybe of just, say, talking to a friend or talking to your parent. I mean, we've all at one time or another had to ask somebody for advice. Well, that's counseling. Well, people that their case is maybe a little bit more severe, they have a little deeper problems that, than that of a normal layperson can handle, they come to us and we do assessments on whether they even need to come into an actual inpatient facility or that of an outpatient. You know, it just depends on the person and, and what they need. But the facilities are not, per se, like a... I've, I've had some of the kiddos that looked, came in there and looked like they were getting ready to go into prison. You know, they you know they were real guarded. They wouldn't say a whole lot. They, it's kind of, you know, they thought maybe the place was bugged. But after they've been there, say, maybe a couple days to a week, they get acclimated in, into the treatment program. And a lot of times we have the kids on time of discharge, and our particular program is a 30 to, say, 45-day average. Mm-hmm. At the end of that period, we have a lot of kids that don't even want to leave. And I guess we can discuss later, they'll even do some, some things sometimes to sabotage, you know, their discharge. Well, I guess before we worry about getting out, let's get them in. One of the things that might be helpful, you mentioned assessment. And I guess I'm curious, how do you help someone determine whether an outpatient therapy would be appropriate or whether something checking into a psychiatric hospital would be worthwhile? Usually we have coordinators that are at RAFA, and what a person would typically do is call RAFA at the 1-800 number that is provided, and they may get that from the TV, or RAFA is advertised on TV and the radio and, and on billboards and, and or by word of mouth. Yeah, the person would call in, and there would be an assessment done there. The person would ask questions related to the person's behavior. Let's say an adolescent would call in. And the RAFA also provides for adults and chemical dependency 
issues. They would ask them, a typical question would be, um, are you suicidal? Have there been any suicide attempts? Is the person uh, running away? Any school problems? Grades like? Is the person failing in school? So there's a lot of questions that are asked the, the parents of a teenager. Mm-hmm. And do you say you ask the parents of the teen? Do you ask the teenager or the adolescent, him or herself? Not until the teenager is admitted will we start asking questions directed so, towards them. So it's generally toward parents or guardians at the initial stages. Right. Okay. And is this admitted for a certain period of time, or is it open-ended, like you said, most of them were 30 to 45 right. days? Well, that's the average. I mean, we've had some kiddos that will come in, and they'll stay maybe the 28, 30 days, and we've had some of them that have stayed almost 100 days. It just depends on the individual case. I'm the aftercare coordinator, and a lot of what I do is placement or find some kind of outpatient therapy after a child has discharged. Like I said, depending on the case and how long they stay there, to where that individual needs, and then afterwards, you know, we'll find them, you know, the outpatient care that they need after that. So let's say that they've come in and you've got some assessment. But even before that, if a parent at home is listening right now and saying, my child is having some difficulties in school and maybe they've run away once and I don't know whether they're suicidal or not, should I be taking my child into a psychiatric hospital or should I be doing something else? Probably something that parent could do, try outpatient therapy first if they don't, if it's not that severe. Okay, now by outpatient therapy we mean? Uh, an outpatient counselor, which is offered throughout the city. Just maybe the parent going in with the, the child or family therapy, maybe try that first and see if that works. So that would be like going to a psychologist or a psychiatrist or social worker or a pastoral counselor or somebody who has a private practice or even at the community mental health center. Right, exactly. You would be looking for someone who would then be of a more severe nature, someone who maybe has not been responded well to outpatient therapy. Exactly. When they are checked in, do they come in against their will? Can Do parents sign their children in even if the child does not want to go? There are those cases. Or do most of your young people want to come? I think a lot, well, I think really for the most part on our program, we've had a lot of kids that, that won't help. It's just they don't want to have to come to a hospital to get it because I think sometimes they're afraid of the stigma attached to that after they leave. But here again, you know, depending on whether it's their first time to maybe be in a hospital, very, you know, it's been several times. I had one teenager a couple of weeks ago, you know, she came in and she just said, well, I'm tired of these kind of places. I'm, you know, ready to get fixed. And she was just thinking, this is just another hospital. Sometimes I do hospital jumping. Of course, the difference that we believe in is that ours is a Christ Center program. All the other ones were out of a secular, not that they don't work or do good. We just feel that we're able to give them the whole realm of care and psychiatry. When you mentioned hospital jumping, what do you mean? They've been basically, you know, treatment failures in other facilities. They've been there for 30, maybe more days. They go home. They slide back into what they were doing. They may be depressed. They may have been suicidal. Or whatever their problem was, they'll slide back to that, then they'll need treatment again. They'll go to another hospital, and it may happen again. You know, I've had patients that were, when they came to us, they may have been in a hospital. This was their fourth or fifth placement. Does that say that the hospital program is not able to meet their needs, or are they really that sick? What does that mean? It depends on the type of program and 
how willing the child is to want to change. I mean, there's not any therapy in the world, of course, that we can give to a child. And if they do not desire to change or want to change, they're not going to do it. I don't care what we say to them or what kind of good tools that we give them to cope with life. You know, they've got to desire to do that. You know, the help is there, but if they don't grab hold of it and, and take it, you know, there's not going to be any change. Kind of like what we are talking about, one of the myths that therapy takes place within, basically, uh, decisions internally. Sure. You know, we, we can simply, like I said, just give them the tools that they need. What would you say to a parent who says, you know, I have a child who doesn't want to change. He or she just wants to stay the same way and, you know, just uh, sit in their room and uh, listen to rock music and they don't want to do anything. Is there any hope? I guess this is going to have to go back on the thought of tough love. Tough love. Tough okay. Love. You know, the kid, you know, a lot of times when the kids are able to do that, it's probably from what I've seen is where the parents say doing their job. There's no structure. It may have been this way throughout the child's whole life. And so there's been no structure, no boundaries, so they've been able to do what they want to and get away with it. Well, now it's come to a real severe point, and they don't know how to handle it. They can't change the child. They need somebody else to go in and really work with the child. But this is also where the family therapy is needed as well. You know, it's just not the child. It's also the, the mother and the father, whoever is around that child, that affects them. Oh, no, it's fascinating. I know when I was in counseling psychology and I had my own private practice, one of the things that always fascinated me were parents who bring their child in by the scruff of the neck, so to speak, mm-hmm. drop them at the front door and say, fix him or right, fix her. Exactly. Do you get that kind of situation? Yeah, it's like when you take your car to the garage and have it fixed, that's what they expect you to do with their child. But we encourage the parents to be involved as much as possible, especially if they're local, if they're out of town. We get a lot of out-of-town patients, so they can't be involved as much as, say, a person do or family that is closer to the hospital that can say they can come once a week to family therapy. Family members, if they need uh, marital counseling, we try to get them involved and get the whole family going in that process. Is this a kind of a family systems approach where you see the patient as really fitting into the whole system of the family? Yes, we try to look at it that way. Everyone could get involved in this rather than just focusing on one individual. I think that avoids blame to any one person is totally responsible for the plight of their family. You know, it avoids a scapegoat. I sense that my own experience has been any indicator that most of the time that a lot of initial contacts involve trying to assess blame. Parents are responsible or somebody's alcoholism or, you know, it's the great-grandfather's genes or it's somebody. But I sense that you try to confront some of that and try to get away from just assessing blame. Right. You know, try to get each person to own their problem, the, the patient coming in to do their part and get each person involved as, to own as much of the problem as they can. Well, I'd like to go back just a little bit, if I may, Danny, to your comment about tough love. Maybe some of the parents listening would like to be able to understand that just a little bit more about how do you really define tough love intervention as versus just being nosy or intrusive or dominating. Do you have anything that might help our listeners clarify that? Well, I guess the tough love is just depending on the individual family is basically setting down guidelines that 
you expect your child to follow, and it's not anything hard. I think sometimes when kids are given maybe a curfew of, of 11 or 12 o'clock at night, you know, if they're used to staying out to 2 or 3, they just act like that kills them to have to do that. But it's, it's a subtle change. It's, I never would work with a parent and tell them to make a whole lot of drastic changes. If you're trying to do it really slow. Gradual, and we're right. not trying to restructure the whole right. order. But it's, it's but you're just getting a handle on it. And the thing of it is, a teenager a lot of times is going to try to buck what you're doing. But the thing of it is, you got to hold fast to that and hold on to that. And I've had that sometimes where the parents would say, this is how it's going to be in this house. We love you and we want you to stay, but this is how it's going to be. And sometimes the adolescents, they just didn't want that, so they maybe went and stayed with a friend or somebody else. But they knew that when they came back to that home, it's not a matter of if they were loved or not. It's just that they had certain guidelines that they had to follow. And I've had parents that have really had to do that and, and put their foot in it. It was really tough for them because that was so out of character to them because they weren't used to that. But they were used to being walked on, really, but they just didn't see that. The kid could do whatever they wanted. I sometimes get that idea that parents get upset because they get frustrated because they want to be rational and sure. think that 11 o'clock should be a good time and therefore I'm going to interact with my adolescent and not recognize that a lot of it is that rebellion that you were talking about. Regardless sure. of whether you said it at 3 a.m., they would want to come in at 3.30. That's right. I sense that that's a very crucial part of recognizing what tough love is. It's not only setting limits, but also recognizing that they have to be something other than just a negotiation with young people who are testing their own limits. Right. There's no getting away from one thing for the teenager just being in their teenage years. So it's a curse, but it's something we have to all go through. You know, in junior high, you know, we're kind of like little know-it-alls, brats, I guess is what I refer to. And then in high school, you know, we really become independent. We're adults now, you know, teenage adults, and we really know what's going on. There's not too much now that, you know, the parents seem can teach their children, so they think. And, of course, when you're an adult, then you have to, you know, face the consequences of not listening to your parent or the adults. And that's, you know, even a lot of adults we find now that are having a lot of problems with coping skills because they didn't want to listen to anybody. Well, we're back to coping with the awareness of listening and blaming and responsibility and awareness. One of the things I'd really like to get into is what is the kind of program that you do once a young person has come into the hospital? Say that the parents work through the procedure or process of getting the person there for assessment. The assessment indicates that they might profit from an inpatient kind of atmosphere. What happens? Well, once the patient is in the hospital, they go through what's called a social history, which gathers background on the person. The parents give that information as well as the patient. The patient experiences also a battery of psychological tests. There's eight that they do, which takes over a period of several days. After that procedure is done, then the patient will get assigned a therapist counselor that sees that person four times a week they also see a psychiatrist three times a week sometimes more sometimes less approximately 30 minutes to 40 minutes each session they also attend what's called a staffing which includes the doctor the psychiatrist the therapist the nursing staff the teacher and other modalities that the patient may be involved in and when you say 
modalities. What, is, what does that mean? Art therapy, recreational therapy, things like that. The staffing occurs one time a week. And what is the purpose of a staffing? I mean, I mean, the young person attends, you say. That lasts 15 to 30 minutes. What's involved there is going over objectives and goals for the week, setting goals, uh, which we feel is important for overall treatment, and giving the person a progress update, a review, basically, of the week and, and where we feel the person is and where they need to go in, in their treatment for that week. So it's more of them listening to what you as a team have decided is appropriate for them? Yes. Okay. And it's also time for them to give us feedback. You know, we allow them to talk as well, to let us know how they're doing, or, you know, if there's something that's bothering them or something they'd like to see done different. We, just, we you know, we let them voice their opinion what's going on. Mm-hmm. So it's a chance for y'all, everybody to come together. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's just not individual treatment therapy as well, but the patient will attend groups. Like a typical day would be Monday, let's say the patient will go to an 825 group from 825 or 820 to 10 to 9. Uh, that's the time where all the patients come together and they have what's called a community group and they talk about problems or issues that may come up that they need to address, usually to the nursing staff. Is that something like a support group or is that communication group? I mean, probably, yeah, more of a communication group, more of a problems and issues type group uh, within the community, within, you know, within the patients. We have about 25 patients right now on the unit. 25 uh, adolescents? Adolescents, right. Okay, and how many staff would go to support, say, these 25 young people? Well, we have anywhere from 12 to 15, depending on what month it is. Your park seems to be the training ground a lot for the therapists coming into the Rafa program. It's our national adolescent unit, so therefore we're going to have a larger staff than that of, I guess, one of our regular units. Scott, you're a therapist, and you have how many young people are you responsible for each week? Anywhere from four to five. So you would work out individual goals, how to achieve them, help them solve, what are the problems to be corrected, and that kind of thing. We call that our, that's our master treatment plan, and that's developed by the 10th day that the patient is there. A master treatment plan, is that, is that something that you develop or you develop it with the staff or is it with the young person? It, it's both with the young person and the staff, the doctor, and then I, I come up with goals and that I have found that I believe that the patient needs to work on through the psychological evaluation and through things that he's just interested or she's interested in working on. Such as anger, like hostility. Some kids come in with a real anger problem. We try to address that issue and, and we talk about it. Say, for example, we do have a young person with anger problem. What are some of the kinds of things that you would do to help confront or help a young person confront his anger problem? Usually what I do is find out what the root cause of it is, try to get to the bottom of it. Well, I mean, would that be by kind of like having them talk about their past or do you put them through psychodramas? I mean, do you have confrontation? We'll be in a group and you may be working with a specific adolescent and say a male may appear uh, to be just like the dad and it's a female therapist and she may take on the attributes of that other mother. Um, mm-hmm. If we confront the child, they'll say that to us. Oh, you remind me just like my dad. 
And so we'll find out what, what is it about me that, or what is it that I'm doing right now that reminds you of your dad. And then also work with them on how to handle their anger in an appropriate way. You know, that I think one of the false things that's taught is that we can't get mad. You know, Christians aren't supposed to be angry. Human beings aren't supposed no, to be angry. No, you're supposed to be happy all the time. <laughs> We try to work with them and develop new skills on how to, to express their anger or that they're upset or depressed or whatever the problem is. But do it in an appropriate way where it's not damaging to themselves or anyone else, but yet it's working towards the problem. I sense that there's a step in becoming aware of your anger and some of the causations, but then I sense that there's then another stage at which you try to find a more healthy or more positive way to express the feelings of anger. Well, there's just so many different facets, I guess, in, in, in dealing with anger. I don't think there's just any one way of working with it. But besides showing that there's an appropriate way to deal with it, a lot of what we do is you show them how to communicate that. A lot of the kids just don't know how to communicate, or the parents themselves. The only way they know to communicate something is maybe throw something or hit something or yell at somebody. They don't know how to sit down and say, you know, when maybe you did this, I really felt upset about it. Or, you know, I felt sad when you did this or this hurt me. There's not a really positive way of confronting, or at least they don't know that. They don't know how to do that. So we try to teach them communication skills, which is really a big part of that. Mm-hmm. A lot of your so-called, I guess, therapy is basically teaching ways to behave other than the ways that got them in difficulty in the first place. Sure. Showing them what would be a right way or an acceptable way of doing it, because evidently their way is not working. I would sense that you're also maybe even giving them permission to say that it's okay to feel certain things, but then that's different from your decision on how you handle those feelings. Okay. Scott, we mentioned about a a new program that you are starting, uh, something about video cameras. We're going to begin, James's work in using the video camera to maybe address some of the assertiveness needs that the kids have, work on anger, help them to see what they look like when, when they get angry, or maybe teach some skills in communication, which we feel is very important, and which young people usually lack you know, when they can't express themselves. The feelings get bottled up, and then the tension comes out in, in other ways. That it's like a volcano. It just blows up. Right. It just builds up. And, uh, I guess the, the video camera then becomes an extension of what we've been talking about, is uh, teaching some alternative ways by, one, first letting someone become aware of how they are communicating or not communicating, and then possibly starting to teach some alternatives for them. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, as the programs progress in the treatment plan and you continue to evaluate, how do you go about deciding whether it's time for someone to leave? The kiddos on our unit, any of the ones that come in, start off on what we call an assessment level, basically four levels within our program. And so we're able to follow the progress of the child in some ways by the level. In other words, how willing they are to work, you know, do their assignments that they have, reading their book, or anything else, any other goals. Maybe it's just to talk with one or two adults a day. You know, a lot of the kids may have trouble doing that. 
So one of their assignments may be that they have to communicate with maybe an adult two or three times a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's other things, too. But like I said, that's something that we can kind of follow. And just during the staffing time, whether it's a teacher, a therapist, the doctor, everybody that's a part of the treatment team comes in and gives the child feedback on how they're doing. And you know, that's one way for us to see whether they should go maybe up to the next level or not by how they're working in the program. But then I sense that your program is really more oriented toward preparing someone for after they get out of the hospital. We call it aftercare program. Aftercare. Yeah, whether a child goes, say, back home, you know, that's what we would, our goal would be. We'd like to see the child back in their home environment with their family. But sometimes that's not always the best thing to do. Maybe they're still ongoing therapy they need. Whether they go home or, say, they have an outpatient counselor or some kind of a support group or even go to what we call a long-term placement, which is in a residential treatment center. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes the kid, depending on the severity of the case, they may need another 6 to 12 months of care. And we have facilities you know, around the country that will service the children. So you really don't even enter into the treatment program with the idea of solving the problems while they are at the hospital. It's more of just preparing them for some of this continuation. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's where the child in our program can more or less get a handle on the situation. They can understand maybe what's going on, why they're depressed, why they're angry, why they're feeling you know, there's no hope. But then, you know, it's, it's an ongoing thing. It's a lifetime project for a child or even the parents. They need to work on this every day. It's just like anything else in their life. You know, if they're in relationships, we have to work on them to keep them healthy. And keep yeah, because I, yeah, I sense that one of the things that I find oftentimes is people who are wanting to go through the why, why, why and not realize that after you find out why, there's still some further work that needs to be done. What can you do to make any changes? As I listen and talk with you, it sounds like really one of the more primary functions of a psychiatric hospital is to teach these young people some alternatives and more healthy ways exactly. of behaving and what to do with their anger or depression or whatever. Well, that, that's it. I mean, it's giving them skills and tools to use after they leave the hospital to be able to basically cope with everyday situations that come up. And by putting them in a hospital setting, you're doing it more intensely than, say, could be done on a on outpatient basis one or two times a week. They're, they're being isolated, and because of the intensive treatment that they get, there are areas of the problems that they are having, the issues that they're dealing with, can be addressed you know, every day mm-hmm. and worked with. But here again, after that 30 or 45 days is up, there's still going to have to be something to help support the person after they discharge. And that's why we look up with counseling service. I want to thank you again for your kindness in joining me here this Thursday evening on Friendship Radio. It's been good. I, I, I knew I would enjoy this, and I certainly have. And I'm glad that you were kind enough to take your time to come and be with us. And once again, maybe the opportunity will uh, avail of itself that we can do a live call-in program somewhere down the line and people can call in and share some of their questions in addition to the ones that we've covered this evening. I want to thank you again for joining me this evening here on KGBC AM 1540 Friendship Radio for Galveston County. I do hope that this program and all of our programs provide valuable resources as you write your life novel. 
and I hope you will join me again on Friendship Radio for Southeast Texas, AM 1540 KGBC, as we continue to explore topics each Thursday evening to enrich the quality of your life. Power for positive living and friendship. Until then, this is your friend and host, James Huey. Good night.